Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Good. Let's pray. So, Father God, we thank you that you are the head of your church. Father, that over these last several weeks, we've been learning about attitudes of the church. Father, not only that that was a local congregation, but that that was your church. So, Father, we thank you that you are gracious enough and merciful enough that you allow us to recognize those attitudes that are inside of our hearts. That, Father, it's only because of you that we are able to see those things. So, Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to be your body. Father, that you use us to serve, that you use us to love others. So, Father, we just pray that you give us the vision and the ears to be able to realize who you are as the head of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, in case you haven't been here, or if you have been here, you know we've been going over the seven churches of Revelation. And those churches were in in Asia Minor, which was in modern-day Turkey today. And so, those literally were apostolic settlements of churches where Paul had sent out to kind of start these churches over this Roman province. So what you've got is, is that they were actual gatherings of people kind of like us, right? But they were also spiritual in terms of what they represented, they represented in terms of attitude, okay? So over the last six weeks that we've talked about these other churches, what you have realized is that Jesus would always say, well, I see what you've done, but, well, unfortunately today, the church that we're going to talk about, Jesus didn't have anything good to say about. And, it, and that's sad. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love those people. It just meant that he didn't have that start off where he had something good to say. So today, I hope by the end of this message, I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to try to present a picture for you based on the physical attributes of this city this church, and I want you to see how it applies to your life spiritually. So I want you to hang with me. I want you to kind of just, just follow. So starting out today, I want to give you a vision. I want to kind of give a, a, a directional kind of a thing. So this is north. This is south. This is east. This is west. So where Laodicea is is where I'm standing. So we're talking about the church at Laodicea. And there were two cities that we're going to reference. To the north, about six miles away, was a town called Hierapolis. Ten miles to the east, so over here against this wall, was a town called Colossa. Most of you will recognize that name Colossa as being from the book of Colossians. So that was one of the letters that Paul had written, and there was a church in Colossa. So ten miles to the east. Six miles to the north. Now, falling from the north was these nice, hot spring waters. Boiling. People would go to Hierapolis when they wanted to go dip into hot springs. Just like you'd find a hot spring here in America somewhere and you go dip in it, they tell you that it had healing properties. That would have been from the north. From the east, flowing to Laodicea, would have been the water that came from the top of the snow-capped mountains. How many of you have ever been in a river that is that cold where the water had come from a snow-capped mountain? So now you have this understanding of how hot this water was and how cold this water was and that it was flowing through this city, okay? Now over here in Colossa, 
<clears throat> when I referenced a while ago where Paul had written a letter back in about 60 AD, he was addressing this town. Okay? So you can pull your Bibles out, and I, I, I recommend that you do it, to go read the book of Colossians. In that book, Paul referenced that they would send that letter to the church at Laodicea. So it's obvious that whatever Paul was saying in the letter to the town of Colossa, that he wanted to speak to the town of Laodicea, that must have been the same problem they were having. So this, this letter that was written to the church at Colossa was addressing something that was an innate problem in that church. And one of the things that was wrong was they denied the deity of Christ. So Paul wanted that presented to this church at Laodicea as well. He wanted to kind of send this letter over to just remind the people, hey, let's move away from your ritual practices. He said, and let's remember that God, excuse me, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. You're like, Frankie, what does that mean? It means when we talk about the deity of Christ, it means that we realize that the power of the resurrection is so powerful that it can be applied to anything in our own lives. Okay? So what had happened in 60 AD over here when Paul was sending this letter, he was kind of reminding them. Well, now, when this letter is written, it's 35 years later. And John, who is writing this letter to the church at Laodicea, has written it with nothing good to say. So apparently somewhere in 35 years, they didn't listen to what Paul had reminded them of, and they had gone completely into pagan worship. And all of you are sitting out there going, well, Frankie, I don't worship Zeus. I don't worship those Greek gods. And I'm here to tell you, if that's the place that you are right now, that you say, I don't worship Zeus, then you're missing the point. He was basically saying, anything that you make as an idol in your life, even if you worship your circumstances, even if you worship your problems, if you worship your church more than you worship Christ, if you worship your service more than you worship Christ, that's just like worshiping Zeus. So let me tell you a little bit about Laodicea so we can get a reference point. Laodicea was the wealthiest if not one of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor. Probably in all of the Roman province, it was one of the wealthiest cities. Now, this was a massive place, probably six or seven miles wide. It had four markets. It had temples. It had a medical school. It had a coliseum that was three football fields wide. So you can imagine that this place, what kind of bustling was going on inside of this city. They were very wealthy. They got their wealth from raising black sheep. And they cut the wool off of that to make these nice expensive garments. So I'm telling you these things for a reason. Because when I break out the scripture, I want you to understand that when John was using the language to speak to this church, he was using it because they would have understood what he was saying. They also had a medical school where they made Phrygian stone. They made a, made a salve that they would treat ear ailments and eye ailments that would take and make people be able to see. It's very important. So very, very, very wealthy town. 
but the water we were talking about is equally as important. So I want you to imagine something for a second. Hot spring waters, ice cold waters, resort town, refreshing, boiling hot, healing. Laodicea's problem was they didn't have any water. So they had to try to pump the water in from somewhere. So you know Rome was big on aqueducts. So they started to develop this system of aqueducts that would have come from these places that I've referenced to you traveling over these long periods of time. So they started laying the concrete and laying the stone and laying the caps until one day, years, it would have taken to make these aqueducts where they were going to have hot water and cold water in their city. Kind of like we got today, right? We can just go turn on the hot water spigot and the cold water spigot. Can you imagine what happened to that water over the course of six miles and ten miles? So that water was traveling, coming across those aqueducts. Not only was it losing its temperature, it was also picking up things out of the stone that gave it a very weird taste. Now, could you imagine being the first person? Now, I want you to think about this because this is, this is going to be a point. Could you imagine being the first person who tested the water that came off of those aqueducts when they first opened them? Somebody tell me what it would have sounded like. All at one time. What would it have sounded like? You got that inside of you? So when that person who tasted that water the first time, they would have gone, ew, that's exactly what it would have been like. So when we start reading this scripture and you see that Jesus said, you are lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It sounded like what? Because it doesn't taste good. It didn't taste good. It was nasty. So I'm here to tell you, I was sick last weekend. And I was laying on my back because I was pretty sick. And I'm here to tell you that God changed my entire attitude about the church at Laodicea. I had an entirely different message. I was going to come in and just shear it down. Boy, I was going to say that church is unconverted. Those people don't know Jesus. They're just going to lay it down. People would have been like feeling like they got whipped or something. And he changed my entire attitude about what that church actually looked like. Because if Paul was addressing that church in 60 AD, it was a church. They had a foundation. They had a foundation in Christ. That means they claimed to know Christ. They were worshiping the deity of Christ. They knew Christ. It wasn't an unconverted church. So 35 years later, now Paul's having to send them something else. Did Jesus stop loving them? Yes or no? No. So for Jesus to be addressing this church, this church that he had nothing good to say about, and he still loved them, it must be entirely different what the message that he was trying to give to that church sounded like. So I'm here to tell you that the problem with the church at Laodicea, listen very carefully, 
The problem with the church at Laodicea is they allowed themselves to bend to the culture rather than bending to Jesus Christ. And you're like, well, Frankie, I don't, I don't bend to the culture. Now, how many of us out here can honestly say that we don't bend to our culture? How many of us can say that we always bend our knee to Jesus Christ? You, you would be telling a lie if you said you did. So that's the spiritual part of what I'm getting ready to go through that I want you to understand that at every time when we talk about these churches being an attitude is that every time we have had one of these attitudes of this church at some point or another, we have been a Laodicean at times. You know how I know that? Because a Laodicean will take scripture and they will fit it to mean what they want it to mean. Not what Jesus intended for it to be truth. That means in any circumstance of your life. But what we want it to say. They will also look more like the world than they do Jesus. So if we can walk around in society like those Laodiceans, right? And they can't tell that we know who Jesus is. That's a Laodicean. That's a person who has bent their knee to the culture, not bent their knee to Jesus Christ. Hear what I'm saying, because this is important. So I'm going to start going over the scripture with you because I want you to kind of get this temperature of what I'm talking about. This is Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I'm going to tell you that when, I'm, when, when God changed my understanding of this, I pulled out the Greek. Well, I'm not going to bore you. I'm not going to try to pronounce a bunch of Greek words and do stuff like that. But I am going to tell you what the Greek meant when we go through the scripture. Because the Greek language is emotional. And it has certain meaning in certain context. Just like we do if we change the inflection of our voice or we, we try to speak to somebody. So when we start looking at this scripture, he wasn't really giving that to an angel. It says it was a messenger. Right? So John has received this from Jesus and he's writing it down so he can hand it to the messenger of the church at Laodicea. So that messenger could be Steve standing up before here, or it could be any one of you that has been dictated as being a messenger to give a, a, a something from God. So could you imagine that when this letter came, I'm going to tell you in a minute, you can see it. Could you imagine that when this letter came, and we're talking about a town that was wealthy, Rich, didn't need anything. They had everything they wanted. Their comforts overshadowed Christ. They didn't need Jesus. Could you imagine when that messenger stood up in front of that church and he said, let me, let me tell you what we're getting ready to say here. You think you're rich. And then somebody out here in the congregation stands up and they go, wait a minute, did you not see our cafe? 
Did you not see our children's programs? Did you not see all of the good deeds that we do? Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. But what I am telling you is I'm saying if those things aren't Christ-centered, they become pagan worship. They become ultimately against the deity of Christ because they have no power. There is no power associated with it. So this is being written to this, this messenger, and it says, These are the words of the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. And let me tell you what the true witness word in the Greek was. It's martus, and it is where we get our term martyr. Does everybody know what a martyr is? A martyr is a person who dies for something that's very, very important, right? So when Jesus is speaking to this church, he's literally looking at them and saying, I'm the only one, period, that has any authority to tell you the things that I'm getting ready to tell you. So if you don't believe what I'm telling you in this letter, then so sad. You're probably not going to believe anybody. Because you're going to say, no, that's not us. And that's the problem. These are the words of the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Well, if we go back to the letter that went to the Colossians, Paul was reminding them that Jesus, everything, everything was made through Christ. Everything was made for him, by him, and through him because God gave him all authority to do so. So he's essentially reminding them. He's saying, this is who I am. And I'm the only one that can tell you this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. Remember those waters that I talked about. I know your deeds. He's literally looking at you. He knows what your deeds are. He said, I'm the faithful witness. I'm the one that knows that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So let me tell you something. The reason that I specified the waters is that when it's hot outside and you jump in a cold pool, doesn't it feel great? That's a positive. The part I had wrong when I started looking at it is I thought cold was negative. Cold is not negative. Jesus is saying, I would rather you be a refreshing drink of water or I would rather you be those hot mineral springs that heal people from the inside out. That's what he was saying. He's saying, I'd rather you be hot or cold. And the way he said it was this. He said, I would you be hot or cold. So in the Greek, Jesus is literally looking at these people and he's saying, I wish, I desire for you to be cold or hot. He said, I I wish. But that wish word there in the Greek language means an unattainable wish. So Jesus is literally sitting there looking at these people going, I wish you were hot or cold. But the emphasis on that was is that it was unattainable. And let me tell you what's unattainable about it. It's unattainable because those people felt like they didn't need Jesus to meet their needs. So he's just saying, you can't do this without me. That's what he's saying. His wish is, is that if you would just do this, I would change this. So he says, because you are lukewarm, 
Now, somebody remind me what that sound is again. So he says, because you are lukewarm, meaning by the time that that water made it, all the way from the hot and all the way from the cold, and it made it to that city center, it was lukewarm and it was bitter and it was putrid. Can you imagine getting ready to bite into a juicy ribeye that you just grilled on the grill and maggots come out of it? That's right. So Jesus got to understand, listen, Jesus loves these people. So when you hear him saying, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, he's literally doing it like that. He's saying, you have come so far from where we hung out and had a relationship. You have drifted so far from being cold or you have drifted so far from being hot that you are now putrid. You are not desirable to have a relationship with. Please come back to being hot or cold so that you and I can hang out again and have that relationship that once tasted sweet. That's what he's saying. Now that can be either because you have, have everything in your life, right? You have everything. You don't need Jesus to bail you out of anything. Or it could be that you are in misery. That you are utterly, your countenance is so low that you are full of anxiety. That you are full of things that make you focus somewhere other than Christ. Is he saying, look, all I want you to do is to come focus on me. I'm the thing that makes you hot. I'm the thing that makes you cold. But you say I am rich, that I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Let me tell you something about this. They're saying it twice. Jesus has said, you say I am rich and I have acquired wealth. The first one is your physical wealth. And now I'm going to tell you something about being in America. And I've said this, but we have comforts that other people don't. Now I'm here to also tell you that it it is to keep us humble. That doesn't mean that we start wishing we were somewhere else. Because if you start wishing that you were somewhere else, doing some big deed for the kingdom, rather than doing the deed of the kingdom where you're sitting, you're a Laodicean. Because you've missed the point of the radical nature of the gospel rather than focusing on whatever you think this deed is that you need to do. So he says, you say I'm rich. Well, your wealth, right? Your physical rich, your physical wealth. Then he says, I have acquired wealth. Well, this church at Laodicea thought they had all the spiritual blessings. And they were worshiping a false god. Now, you heard what I said a while ago. I said, we walk in, they bring this church in. They says, oh, I'm rich. I have acquired everything. But you do not realize that you are this, that you're not rich. And that person stands up and they say what I said a while ago. Don't you see all the gold? Don't you see all these things? That is the clear mark of a person that is full of pride who is in idolatry. Because they don't even recognize these elements of things that Jesus says they are. Number one being, you are wretched. 
I'm here to tell you that every single one of you, including myself, is wretched. How does that make you feel when I call you wretched? How does it make you feel? That's a terrible, people don't understand the word. They go, oh, you're wretched. You're miserable. You're wretched. You know what the word means in the Greek? It makes so much sense. It means calloused from strain. How many of you in here, you can put your hand up if you want, because I'm going to put mine up, because I'm going to use me as an example. How many of you feel calloused on the inside from the strain that you've been under trying to get to the end of some pain that you're in? Let me tell you what the last two years of my life has felt like. I know what being wretched feels like because I have tried my best to control only the things that God can. Oh God, you gave me this new business? Okay, I'm going to take it from you and I'm going to control it. Oh God, I feel miserable. I'm hurting on the inside. He's like, well, son, I'm trying to help you, but you're not listening to me. So if, if all of you who raised your hands and say you feel calloused and you feel strained, you're wretched, that is humility. That you can put yourself in a place and say you are wretched without Jesus Christ. That's a start. That's the place. He says, you need to realize. He said, but you don't. He said, because you're so blind, you don't even realize you're wretched. Calloused from strain. Do you see how beautiful when you see the emotion of the word? It makes you say, oh God, that wretched word ain't so bad no more. It's actually worse than what it was because I've been trying to do it on my own and my insides are in pain. Pitiful, poor, blind and naked. All of these are conditions that we have without Jesus Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's like when, you know, being naked. We all know what blind is. Jesus healed a bunch of blind men, right? That was to show that he could heal people and let them see. Naked. Could you imagine, you remember in the garden when Adam and Eve were standing behind the bush and they had just sinned, right? The fall had just occurred. And God walks up to him and says, hey, guys, what you doing? Oh, we're just hanging out. He's like, no, what you doing? He said, we're naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? We're not even supposed to know that we are naked. You'll look at me and go, well, Frankie, I got clothes on. And you're missing the point. We are not ever in Christ supposed to know that we are naked. Because the very nature of us being in Christ covers all of that shame and all of that guilt and all of that callous strain. It covers it all. Because we're not supposed to feel that stuff. Pitiful, poor, Blind and naked. So what does Jesus do? He loves them, right? He just called them wretched, blind, poor, 
miserable, pitiful, naked, in need of mercy. And he says, but this is what I want you to do. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. How many have tried to refine their own gold? Come on. Everybody should raise their hand. Because if you think about yourself, and I want you to put yourself spiritually on one of those water tracks. That's why I kind of told you about them, right? Hot over here, cold over here. And I want you to put yourself as that spiritual principle of coming down that water track. So let's just say it's been over years, right? Let's say a few years. So by the time you make it from up here where you and Jesus was hanging out and having a relationship together, and you start going through some stuff, and you don't recognize that God's trying to refine you in the fire, and you try to fight against God, and you don't listen to his voice to try to correct those things that are going on, and you slide a little bit further down that aqueduct, and Jesus is still trying to talk to you and saying, let's fix this stuff, and you slide a little bit further down that aqueduct, and along the way you're picking up all of the bitter stuff that's in that stone, that by the time you make it from there to there, you are putrid and you are unrecognizable. And yet Jesus still loves you. He says, hey, come buy gold from me. So you know when we're going through things or we're in that pit of depression or we're in that pit of anxiety or we have anxiety or we're struggling with things or we have an addiction or our marriage is suffering, Don't lean on your own understanding. Put Jesus in the midst of your circumstances and you'll never leave Hierapolis or Colossa. You'll be hot or you'll be cold. You might still suffer because Jesus never said that we wouldn't suffer. But your attitude will be different about it because Christ is in charge of your attitude, not you being in charge of your attitude. You didn't turn your attitude into an idol. You bought gold from him that was refined in the fire because we are going to go through things in life. Listen to what I'm telling you. That is going to try to make us lukewarm. But Jesus says, don't get to that place. Buy gold from me. Realize that the things you are going through in life are going to refine you so that you never leave being in the hot or the cold place. That's what he's saying. That's a loving God. That's a loving father that says, hey, you're a putrid and I want to spit you out of my mouth, but I counsel you still because I love you. It says, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. We talked about this. The Greek there says, buy these white clothes. Well, you remember me talking about the the black sheep garments, right? They were rich. They could put on these nice, cool-looking black uh, clothing made out of the sheep's wool. And Jesus would have been talking to people that understood what they were saying. He says, buy white garments from me. He said, so that your nakedness will not be made manifest. Manifest. Everybody kind of understand what that word means? Manifest means to come forth. So he's saying, put these white garments on so that everybody else in the world don't see your sin. That they don't see your nakedness. That they don't see your shame. 
Let them see me, not your stuff. That's what he's saying. He's saying, put these garments on because they cover up that nakedness. Put salve on your eyes. You remember me talking about the Phrygian stone where they made the salve to put over the eyes. So he's basically sticking it to this temple worship. He's saying, you're not ever going to see unless you let me be the one that heals your eyes. This is a repeat of Hebrews. This is still in the same scripture. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love. I told you a while ago that Jesus still loved this church. They had drifted so far. And we drift so far at times. How many of you really would say that you welcome the discipline of the Lord? But I'm, I'm telling you that the scripture says that he only disciplines those whom he loves. That's it. That means if you're not being disciplined, there's one of two things happening. You don't belong to him or you ain't hearing his voice or you hear it, but you're ignoring it. One of the two. Because he says, to those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. I welcome after the fact. Right? Because after the fact, we can look back and we can see what the discipline of the Lord has done in our life. So then the next time, that built your faith a little bit. And then it built your faith a little bit more. And then it built your faith a little bit more because of the things that you've been through. That's the discipline of the Lord. That's when he says, so be earnest and repent. So see, here's the cool thing about the church at Laodicea. They had lost their way entirely. There wasn't nothing left. And Jesus was still saying, come on, repent. Repent. I'll be the one that can get you back to hot or cold. And here's a very interesting, I've heard people preach this one this way. They'll walk in before they ever say anything and they won't even, it'll be completely quiet in the crowd. And they'll walk in and go, There's a lot of people I've seen that have preached the message on this where they just come in and start knocking on the door. Isn't it interesting that in this spiritual attitude, Jesus is outside of the church knocking on the door? Could you imagine if Jesus Christ was standing at those two doors and he was knocking? How many of us would turn around and look and let him in the door? And and the, the Greek here says that he was gentlemanly knocking. Now, here's the vision of this. Imagine it in your own life now, spiritually. This is the vision. Jesus is the head of the church, and the body is us. And in this picture, Jesus is outside of the body, knocking on the door. Meaning that we or you individually have decapitated the head off the body. Now, how can the body function if it ain't got a head? Last time I checked, all the functions for controlling the body were inside of the head. 
So again, we have this patient, loving, gentlemanly God who is tapping on the door and says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that means on your journey from hot and cold to lukewarm, he's still been knocking on your door. And he's still been saying, let me in. I want to come in and share a meal with you. And here's the cool part about this is the Greeks ate three meals a day, kind of similar to us, right? But we eat big breakfast, big lunch, and big dinner. So the Greeks would have like a piece of bread dipped in wine in the morning, just something quick. And at lunchtime, they'd be running around at their work or in the market or something, and they would just have this little, like a piece of something wrapped with a piece of meat in it or something, and they would just eat it real quick on the go. The word used right here where Jesus says, I'll come in and dine with you is the Greek word for long dining, the evening meal, the one where he's going to come in and he's going to lounge with you and he's going to hang out and be in relationship with you and he's going to be your God and he's going to counsel you. Not the quick meal where he comes in and goes away. It's that long meal where he comes in and he lounges and dines and wants to be your friend it's a friendship it's those he is fond of but when we are putrid and lukewarm jesus says i spit you out of my mouth because you are not desirable to come in and have that relationship with that's always the piercing question how would you feel If Jesus looked at you and said, child, you are putrid. You are not desirable to have a relationship with. How would that make you feel? It breaks my heart to know that I've done that, been there, said the same thing. And probably when he said it to me, I probably looked at him and said, it's okay. You'll come back later. How much we take for granted This Lord that we have that loves us that much that even when there was nothing good, he still loved them. That's the type of God that we have. And it says to the one who is victorious, here's the hope. This is what I want you to get out of today. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. If if we can recognize, I'm going to read something to you because I want to, you know, Revelation is not a largely synchronous book. Meaning you start reading through Revelations and it jumps to this vision and goes over to this place and comes back to this place and all that kind of stuff. But what I will tell you is that what I'm going to read you is your hope. And it happened right after John got these letters to these seven churches. This will be in Revelation chapter 4. For those of you who have never read this, this is the, the throne room of God. How amazing that would have been to be able to witness or see that. So starting in verse 1, so we have just finished the seven letters to the churches. 
So this is where I say this is synchronous because John says, after this, I looked. After what? After he just received these seven letters talking about the attitudes of the church. It says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. How many of you have shut your door to heaven? How many of us have failed to recognize the power of the resurrection of our Lord in our own lives? Because come down to it, that is denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Because through God, he was resurrected from the dead so that you could live a resurrected life as a new creature. So how many have shut that off? And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was, look, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. How many of us truly, in the midst of our problems... When we make our circumstances bigger than Jesus Christ, how many of you think about a crystal clear river flowing in front of the throne of God and jasper and rainbows and stuff coming back from behind the lamb who was slain, who was sitting on this throne, who is residing over all of your issues? I, I really believe that's important because it is immediately after he talks about the attitudes of the churches he's saying oh those attitudes are something that's happening but but pay more attention to this because this is what takes care of it and all the angels were sitting around the throne saying what holy is the who was and is and is to come i wonder what would happen here's what I, i challenge you I wonder what would happen. Now, I haven't done this all the time in my own life. Man, I would sit there and say, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why am I going through this? And don't hear nothing. Be like a pin drop. I wonder what would happen if we had a vision of God sitting on his throne and we said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. I wonder if we just started saying that over and over in the midst of our circumstances, what would happen? Because then it makes his holiness greater than your circumstance. It makes his holiness greater than the religion that we try to create in Jesus' name. That's bogus. That's pagan. Anytime you try to do it outside of Christ, it is pagan idolatry and the solution is 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We've reached such a place, and I I can't take credit for this. I had this in a conversation this morning. We have reached such a place that Jesus has become the cliche. And the things that we do in our problems becomes the things that we focus on. Instead of Jesus being everything that there is, and all of these other things can be handled or absorbed inside of Christ. Right? That's, that's where we are. That's why it ends with Laodicea. Because Jesus has given you a, it's a warning. But it's also a shift correction. It's also a steering of the ship to get us back on course. So just believe in your own life, no matter what you're going through. Sickness, broken marriage, addictions, any of those things. That if you truly take the truth of Christ, not what you interpret the truth of Christ to be. Because again, I told you that was a Laodicean. But what he truly says about it, you will have a shift correction. You will wind back up in the hot, sitting in the spring, or you'll be in that nice refreshing cold water on the other side. It's that simple. And I realize that our problems aren't simple. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The struggle is real, people. But Jesus is more real. Period. That doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. That doesn't mean Frankie is saying, oh, get over yourself. I didn't get over myself for about two years. Still not entirely over it. But I can tell you that I have begun to realize that I had gotten so far away that I started to have that smell of tepid water. So breathe. Smell. Take a deep breath in. And let Jesus tell you what you smell like. What do you taste like? So Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Father, for your truth. Father, and I pray now that your truth would land. That Father, your truth would penetrate into the depths of places that are wretched and blind and miserable and poor. That Father, those are your words that you want us to be humble. Father, not full of pride. But Father, in such a place... That we hear your voice. That's all. You just want us to hear what you are saying to us. So, Father, those words would have an effect on changing and making us look more like your son. In Jesus' holy name, amen.